Welcome to the Life Community Church Podcast. We are so excited and thankful you've decided to join us. We have a very special message for you today that we pray blesses you. If you can just endure this for a few minutes and then you can go get Easter egg. How you doing? Well, this is a great week in in the life of the church as we celebrate Jesus this week uh, heading to the cross and what he's going to accomplish. Our great salvation is so great. We've been talking about the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how to, about the Bible and and how important it is to us. Uh, We talked last week about what Jesus believed about the Bible and Jesus believed that the scriptures that he had, which we would call the Old Testament, of course, Jesus didn't call it the Old Testament, uh, the scriptures that Jesus had uh, from Genesis to Chronicles, different order, but the same books that we have today in our translations, Jesus believed that all of that was the Word of God. He even said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus believed that the Bible was a revelation of him and that he was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament scriptures and not just the prophecies, just all of the Bible is, all of the scripture is Christological. One of the things you should try to do in every scripture that you read Try to see what it's showing you about Christ. Because every scripture, Christ is at the center. And Jesus affirmed all the Old Testament as scripture, the word of God. So today we're going to talk about how we got the New Testament. Now, when I was growing up, uh, we used to have what we called, uh, people would sing specials. And the problem with most specials is that they weren't. (laughs) And someone would often get up and say, y'all pray for me as I try to sing. So I want to say to you today, pray for me as I try to preach. This, This topic is more technical than, than, than I normally preach. And so, because this topic on the, the inerrancy of Scripture and the authenticity of Scripture is so important, uh, there's, there are a lot of tremendous resources out there and a lot of great books. But there's also, if you, there's also a video on YouTube called The God Who Speaks. It's 90 minutes, and I know you would not endure 90 minutes here. Uh, it's 90 minutes, so in that 90 minutes, I think you, you, you'll find it's very helpful. It goes into much greater detail than we're able to, to go in today. But I would, I would recommend that to you if, if this in any way uh, causes you greater interest or, you know, if you sleep through this part, and uh, then you would like something interesting. Uh, so can we trust, here's the question, can we trust that what we have in our New Testament is a true representation of what Jesus said and did. Was it, did, the, did the disciples make it up? Uh, and if they, 
doesn't make much sense for them to make it up because can you imagine saying, hey, guys, hey, I've got an idea. Jesus died on the cross, and he's in the tomb. Let's act like he rose from the dead, and then they'll kill us all for it. (laughs) There's no reason to make it up. Uh, But can we believe that our New Testament is a true representation? For centuries, what Bible-believing Christians have accepted these two important things. We call it the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. Verbal inspiration means, the Latin for verbum is word. It means God, God's inspiration extends to the very words of Scripture, though that God inspires every word. Plenary inspiration means the full inspiration. It means every part of the Bible is fully inspired, not just merely the parts that have to do with salvation or our spiritual lives. Uh, ver- verbal plenary inspiration does not mean that God turned the writers into robots, It's not like God was controlling them with some cosmic keyboard, making them write out the things that he said. Uh, The Bible authors used their own free expressions, and God providentially guided their lives so that they would choose the words that conveyed the truth. Think about the life of Paul. Before Paul became a follower of Christ, he was very educated, and he was As a rabbi, he would have probably had all of the Old Testament memorized. So God providentially worked in Paul's life and then called him as an apostle to the Gentiles, and then he became one of the major writers of the New Testament. Most of our New Testament comes from the apostle Paul. So God guided his life so that Paul had this vocabulary and depth of learning and depth of theology that he could draw from so that he understood the Old Testament, so he could take the Old Testament and make it come alive in the new, God was able to use him in that way. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is inspired by God. That word inspired means God breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Timothy Paul Jones, in his book, How We Got the Bible, another good book I would recommend, Timothy Paul Jones, How We Got the Bible. As the message of Jesus multiplied through the world, God began to inspire new writings that preserved the truth about Jesus and revealed how to live in the kingdom. During the first decades that followed the resurrection of Jesus, Christians memorized eyewitness accounts about Jesus and wrote letters that applied Jesus' teaching in their lives of his followers. Soon, these spoken testimonies about Jesus began to be brought together with the teachings of Jesus to produce four Gospels written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Christians throughout the first century church treated text connected to apostles and eyewitnesses of Jesus as inspired guides of their life. Since every authoritative text in the church had to be linked somehow to an eyewitness, written revelations ended as the first century eyewitnesses and their associates passed away. So they based it on were the apostles are connected to the apostles. And so we have to understand that. So, so the first century church, how did Jesus convey scripture. Well, Jesus conveyed all of his scripture orally, and he told stories. That's how that was very common. You have to 
Think about it, in the first century world, 50%, at least 50% of the Roman Empire, they did not read and write. And so oral transmission of stories was very common. This was how it was, how it was done. Jesus told stories. So when the church was birthed in the first century after his death and resurrection, they, the apostles told the stories of Jesus. So when people came to faith in Christ, they told them what Jesus had told them. And they repeated these stories. And if someone repeated the story and said, you know, said something that was incorrect, there were people who had, people who were eyewitnesses, people who had been there would correct them. So the stories were being maintained to keep, to keep them true and, and honest to the original intent. So they conveyed these verbally because writing was just very difficult to do. It was very unusual for someone to write something because it was expensive and difficult and most people did not have the ability to do it. N.T. Wright in his book, How We Got Our Scripture, said this, the Bible is the God-given means by which we know who Jesus is. Take the Bible away, diminish it or water it down and you are free to invent a Jesus just a little bit different from the Jesus who is hidden in the Old Testament and revealed in the New. We live under Scripture because that is the way we live under the authority of God that has been vested in Jesus the Messiah, the Lord. So it was in the first century that these earliest writings about Jesus began to circulate in the churches, the, the epistles, the letters that we see in our New Testament from Paul and from Peter. The authors of these early epistles were apostles. Christ commissioned eyewitnesses of the resurrection. So what was the purpose of these? Well, the purpose of these letters was to say what Jesus said. They wanted to apply the message of Jesus. They didn't want to just give the history of Jesus. It wasn't just a history lesson uh, because Jesus didn't give history lessons. Uh, it was to show the teachings of Jesus and how they should live them, to demonstrate what Jesus meant. And these teachings carried the same authority in the churches as the teachings of Jesus himself. Now, when you think about it, you know, you think about Paul writing these letters or Peter writing these letters, but in reality, it's unlikely that Peter or Paul or James or any of the apostles would have ever sat down with a pen in hand to actually write a letter in their own handwriting. How's your penmanship? My family will attest to you that mine is horrible. I have a, anybody here got bad penmanship? I use kind of a mixture of printing. I print some of my stuff, and I, I do some of it in cursive so that none of it's legible at all. It's, we'll go to seminars and stuff, and Lauren will often comment, Dad, you're not taking notes. And, uh, and the reason I don't take notes is because when I take notes, when I look back to read what I wrote, I can't read it. So it's not very effective for me. So you think about being a scribe was a very specific task and job. And it's unlikely that the apostles would have written things by their own hands. They would have instead used trusted secretaries who, who were skilled in writing on papyrus which is a, a, a fabric made of woven papyrus like linen, similar to, in, to linen, 
then made into sheets that are then if in in Jesus day until there were codexes which is a book form later in the first century uh, they would be on a scroll and sometimes those scrolls would be 25 feet long and so the, the job of a, a, a secretary was to to write orderly to create columns you can you know you're going to have a scroll 25 feet long so you have to you know they they read from right to left you're going to have a scroll that may be 25 feet long like the book of Romans uh, and depending on whether it's in Hebrew or Greek you know whether it's, which way it's going to go uh, and they're going to have to write this all out so it, it needs to be done by somebody who is who's, who's trained <laughs> can, I mean, don't you imagine somebody who knows what they're doing I mean that's what I do Whenever, you know, it's somebody's birthday, we need to give them a card. I hand the card to Tina and say, here, sign the card. Because I can read her writing. I, you know, you have hope. You want to send somebody a birthday card. You want them to be able to understand. It's like, oh, look, it's a card from Pastor Randy. He says, okay. Uh, <clears throat> you know, things can be misinterpreted that way. So, so we see that Paul, Paul and the others, they used, they used, secretaries that wrote and then they would sign the letter in their own hand they would authenticate it second Thessalonians 3:17 I Paul write this greeting with my own hand and this is its distinguishing mark in every letter this is the way I write so he's saying this is my signature so Paul's signature became understood so they could say hey we got this letter it says it's from Paul they would look for the signature and say, yeah, yeah, this is another one of Paul's letters. Uh, Tertius composed Paul's letter to the Romans. He says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Secretaries also were identified uh, that they had written the apostles' letter. So, so, there, so Paul would say, this greeting is in my hand or this ending is in my hand, but Tertius is saying in Romans, I write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Uh, Sylvanus crafted Simon Peter's first letter, uh, first letter in First Peter. Through Sylvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So it's likely that, that that's the only section of the letter that Peter wrote. It's like, okay, here it is, guys. Do it. Right? So... It was, it was very important. So these scriptures were transformed, written down by these secretaries. So they would have these reed pens that were sharpened with knives. We had a slit in them. Uh, they were dipped into ink that was made of a mixture of water and soot and sap. And then they would be inked very carefully on sheets of papyrus. Uh, if, if, and like I said, if the letter was lengthy, like the book of Romans, it's a very lengthy letter, uh, they would have to be glued sheets together, glued together. Some is 25 or 30 feet long. So then once a letter was assembled, it was finished, they would send a, a trustworthy messenger, someone that they trusted, to carry this letter, this scroll, to a local church and then read, probably that person would also read the contents of the letter in a public assembly. So it was read aloud, and then that letter would probably be copied, and other letters would be sent to other places. Listen to what it says in Colossians 4.16. 
When this letter is read among you, this is Paul's letter to the Colossians, have it also read to the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So we had all these letters that are being written, and they've got, they're making copies of them, and they're reading them in their public church gatherings. So what happened to all of those original documents that we would call autographs? What happened to them? Well, the shorter answer is we don't have any of them because, for one thing, it's a long time ago. Another thing is papyrus is fairly, uh, is not durable. In AD 180, though, Tertullian of Carthage wrote, one of our church fathers, you who are ready to exercise your curiosity, run over to the apostolic churches where their own authentic writings are read. Then he listed the specific cities where these apostles' letters could be viewed. So he's saying, if you want to go see the originals, they have the originals. And he would say, okay, and they have the original at Ephesus, and they have the original of Revelation in Ephesus, because that's where John was when he wrote it. So all four of the New Testament Gospels were written in the lifetimes of the eyewitnesses, and their testimony can be traced back to firsthand encounters with Jesus himself. Then a second century Christian named Irenaeus of Lyon about the origins of each gospel. He says this, Matthew published his gospel among the Hebrews in their own language while Peter and Paul were preaching and founding the church in Rome. That would have been in, 60, in the 60 uh, AD era. Because by 70 AD, both Paul and Peter had been killed by Nero. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and translator of Peter, passed down to us in writing those things that Peter preached. Luke, the attendant of Paul, recorded in a book the gospel that Paul declared. Afterward, John, the disciple of the Lord, who leaned against the Lord's side, published his gospel while living at Ephesus in Asia. All of these originals have been lost to time. And what happened to many of them, they were burned with the Christians while the Christians were being burned. Because for the first 350 years of the church, uh, the Roman Empire sporadically, sometimes very aggressively, sometimes not very aggressively, persecuted the church. And when they were aggressive, not only would they burn the church because they recognized, not only would they burn the Christians, they recognized how important the scriptures were to them, they would also burn the scriptures. So, so how do we know that what we have is accurate since for 1,500 years until the, until the invention of the Gutenberg movable type press in 1415, every one of those manuscripts from the time of Jesus until 1415, the only way to produce them was to produce them by hand. So that means that humans were involved. How many of you know that humans make mistakes? We're pretty consistent about that. So how do we know that what we have, 1,500 years, these manuscripts that are copies and copies of copies and copies of copies of copies, how do we know that those manuscripts are conveying to us the truth? One is that the staggering amount of manuscripts that we have, 
if you look at the writings of Plato and you had a stack of all of his writings, that stack would be about four feet high. If you had a stack of all the New Testament manuscripts, that stack would be about a mile high. It's, it's, it's staggering. So how do we know if the wording is correct? Well, one, it helps that we have over 5,700 Greek New Testament manuscripts and as many as 20,000 versions and more than 1 million quotations in the church fathers in the first 200 years. So from those, the quotations of the church fathers and this having the mass of the 5,700 different manuscripts that you can compare those manuscripts and say, look, there was a letter accidentally added here and it's not in any of the other manuscripts. Or it's not in, here, there's a story here, the story of the woman caught in adultery. If you have a modern translation, that modern translation will make a note to you. It will just be a little notation. This story is not in the earliest manuscripts. Now, that doesn't mean it's not a Jesus story or a Bible story, but it means the earliest manuscripts left that out. So, now, that story doesn't convey any new information about God. It doesn't change our theology, theology about God. But the early manuscripts then help clarify the older manuscripts where something had been added. When they wrote the King James Version, they didn't have access to those manuscripts. They had not been discovered. And so that story was in the King James Version. They didn't, they didn't know that it might be missing in other manuscripts. But we were able through critical analyzing of the scriptures and critical doesn't mean to be critical of it it means to examine it carefully to be critical of it that they could determine with a great deal of precision that what we have is accurate and the mistakes that were made a majority of the mistakes that are made they're copying errors they're spelling mistakes I mean you know, and, and you can read another text and realize, oh, or you could read it and say, this was a copying error that should have been sent a, a mistake, a misspelling that should have been corrected. But it doesn't change our theologies. There's no, there's no great changes. Those come later in the Gnostic Gospels, you know, these, these weird Gospels that you hear about, you know, they love to talk about on National Geographic. They've discovered the hidden gospel. You know, the gospel of Mary, the gospel of somebody, you know. And all of those were written way after, after 200. These were written and, you know, and then discovered. And there's a whole lot about that on that show that, I, that would, if you're interested in that, you'd enjoy that. From the moment that the apostolic fathers, when the apostles wrote the text, it was regarded as scripture. Now, that's interesting. So, so they saw that what they wrote is Scripture, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold on to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or mouth or by letter or from us, saying what we're teaching you need to hang on to. No later than the second half of the first century, the apostles and the eyewitnesses were already categorizing the writings of the other apostles as Scripture. This is what Second Peter, what, what he says about Paul. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, 
and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom giving him, wrote to you. And also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Peter said, listen, I've been reading some of the letters of Paul. That's some pretty heavy theology there, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. So Peter is saying that the writings of Paul are scripture. Now imagine you're a follower of Christ in the first two centuries of church history, and you've chosen, you've, someone's shared with you the story of Jesus dying for your sins on the cross and raising from the dead and that, uh, and that this God loves you and you're so amazed because there's a Roman who has followed the pagan gods uh, all of your life. They've never talked about the, the gods loving you because they don't love you. They test you. They use you. You have to appease them, but they don't love you. To hear the story of Christianity, there is a God whose wrath has been appeased, not by you, but that he has sent his own son to pay the price until you become a follower of Christ. And you're committed to the kingdom of God, but you're also fully aware that at any moment the emperor might renew the persecutions that have begun decades ago. But, but you believe it's worth it because in this sect of Christianity, you have found the life and peace and joy of Christ. Through baptism, you have committed yourself to the body of Christ, the body of believers. You believe that God is your Father, God is your Savior. You have your fellow believers, fellow brothers in Christ, and you are identifying with them, and you believe that your fate is their fate. And you want to learn more about Jesus. How are you going to do that? Are you going to run down to Mardell's and pick up a couple of books? No. There's, there's no... There's no Christian bookstores. There's no bookstores of any kind. Uh, even if you could purchase a scroll that contained Jesus' teaching, it probably wouldn't do you much good because most people in the Roman culture could not read. So without access to the writings of, of Jesus, what he said, what are you going to do? Well, you do what the early ch church did. They gathered together on the first day of the week, and they read these letters that they had received from the apostles and from, from Peter, James, and John. They, wrote, they, they read the gospels out loud, and they learned the stories of Jesus. So they kept these texts because these texts could be traced back to the eyewitnesses from the apostolic era. Why do we have the scriptures that we have in the Bible, and we don't have a bunch of other stuff, because those scriptures passed the test of time that they were authored by either the apostles, like Matthew, or they were authored by people who were in close relationship to the apostles, like Luke. And so they, they, they protected and kept only those books that they could prove were written by those who had close association with Jesus. They said this is what they would do. On a day called Sunday, a Christian named Justin wrote in the second century, there's a gathering and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Time was a problem even 2,000 years ago. So, 
So because each of these, each copy and each letter of each gospel had to be copied by hand, copies remained very expensive until the advent of the movable press in 1450. Uh, by 400 AD, the church liturgy and the Bible was in Latin. And the actual ability to read the Bible became more and more difficult and was more and more restricted by the then Roman Catholic Church. You may not know this, but up to 600 years ago, owning an English Bible was hazardous to your health. 600 years ago, you could be burned at the stake for either producing or possessing an English Bible. From the perspective of church leaders in this era, Bible translation and heresy went hand in hand. The scriptures had to remain in Latin only to be read by trained clergy. In 1415, a church council, ga council gathered at the city of Constance uh, to conduct a heresy trial, and they decided that both John Wycliffe and John Huss were, were heretics because they believed that scripture superseded church tradition. They believed that Scripture was the defining characteristic of, of behavior, not tradition, not church tradition, but, but what the Scripture said. And so for that, they were determined to be heretics. And John Wycliffe, who had been dead for 30 years, they dug him up and burned him. And then John Huss, who was very much alive, said, I would prefer to be, he said, I would prefer to be burned like uh, Wycliffe was 30 years after I'm dead. But he quoted Psalms as he was sent to the flames. See, Wycliffe was trying to translate the scriptures into everyday vernacular so that people could read it. The common man, it said, his critic said this, Wycliffe's work was not received by church leaders. Christ gave his gospel to the clergy and to the learned doctors of the church so that they might give it to the lay people. One of the church's chronicles contended, but this master John Wycliffe translated the gospel from Latin into the English, and Wycliffe, by thus transferring the Bible, made it common to all, even to women. You know, what's going you get women get it, all hell's going to break loose. The words of the Archbishop of Canterbury, was listen to this, what the Archbishop of Canterbury said. That pestilent and most wretched John Wycliffe of damnable memory, a child of the old devil, and himself a child or pupil of Antichrist, crowned his wickedness by translating the scriptures into the mother tongue English. Wow. <laughs> then William Tyndale, they burned him at the stake at the command of King Henry VIII for his translation of the scriptures into English and his disseminated among the English people. The Geneva Bible was, of 1560 was greatly influenced by William Tyndale's translation. However, the Geneva Bible had notes in the margin, and the notes in the margin were shaped by the theology of John Calvin. And at times, the notes in the margin seemed to question the absolute power of kings which made King James uncomfortable. Such notes were, according to King James, savoring of dangerous and traitorous conceits. So in 1611, King James authorized his own translation with 47 scholars. And from then till now, thankfully, with the invention of the printing press, 
Scriptures have become more readily available. But even right now, there are 1,800 people groups in the world that do not have Scripture in a language they can understand. And that's why, as a church, you and I, we support Wycliffe Bible Translators. We give every month to a group that is working diligently to get the language in the common language of everyone in the world. And that's a great cause. All right, so I'm out of time. So let me just end with this. What about translations? What translation should you use? Well, I would say this. God's word is forever and his truths of scripture are timeless, but every translation of the Bible is temporary since language changes over time. Things that were very good like the Wycliffe Bible and the Tyndall's New Testament and even the Geneva Bible, they were the finest English translations available, but today all of those would be very difficult for you to read and understand. They use words that we don't use any longer. They were based mostly on the writings, the, the translation of Erasmus, who had at best, seven Greek manuscripts when he translated the 16th, in the 16th century. Now today, modern scholars have over 5,000 manuscripts, some dating to the 2nd century. So what's the best translation? The one you'll use. <laughs> you know, are, are there, there's paraphrases. There, you have the message. You've got the living New Testament. There's all, all kinds. But, and there's all kinds and styles of translations. You know, I'm not as worried about that as I really want you to use it. Because, guys, we could be in a very short time at the same place they were 2,000 years ago where they want to burn the Bibles and declare that they should be outlawed. We would have never thought this possible 20 years ago or 30 years ago. But today, you can look on the horizon, you can see it wouldn't take much did you know that in England, in the UK, a Christian, a nation that actually has a, a national religion, in the UK, they have, it's against the law to silently pray in front of an abortion clinic. They have arrested a woman for silently praying. I mean, not moving her lips. Not, not saying anything, but standing in front of a, an abortion. And they asked her if she was prayed, and she said yes, and they arrested her. That's, you think, that, that will, you, know, you think of anything, that will never happen. They cannot arrest you for thought crimes. Yes, they can. And so we need, to, we need to know, we need to be convinced, we need to know our Bible. We need to hide his word in our heart because we, there may be a time where they would come and take our Bibles away. It's not going to happen tomorrow, but these changes are taking place rapidly. Unless there's a revival that takes place, the Bible tells us in the last days, it's going to get worse and worse. I think we're in the last days. And our, the way we prepare is that we need to be people of his word. We need to know what it says. And even more than that, we need to live it.
Jesus said, it's not even good if you're a hearer of the word. You need to be a doer of it also. Amen? Amen. I got to quit. Okay, let's stand. There's eggs to be hunted. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we, we have this treasure, this tremendous gift you have provided. We have this season where we have readily access to the Word of God, and yet we take it, in, in, take it for advantage. Uh, we, we take it for granted that we'll always have it. It'll always be available. It'll always be here. What a treasure. You have, you have made it your Word, your revelation available to us. Let us get a hold of it. Understand how valuable, how valuable that is. Let us understand what we have. People have died so that we could have the Bible in our hands in a language we understand. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. This has been the Life Community Church Podcast. Thank you for listening.